And he said to his disciples, But who do you say that I am? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Did everyone see the eclipse last week? Yes, it was this past week, seems like forever ago. For a few brief moments, it seemed like the world stood still, didn't it? It seemed like everything stood still as the world, or at least most of the country, stopped what they were doing, right? Stared up at the sun. Not a good idea unless you had those glasses. Everything grew quiet, but for the cicadas and the crickets, I was right behind the church here in the parsonage, and it was a holy moment, wasn't it? And I knew it was holy, maybe even a miracle, because at that moment, even if just for a brief second, the traffic on 78 ceased to exist, (laughs) all right? A total eclipse of one thing or another. But why did this captivate us as a nation? I think it's because humanity is hungry. We are hungry for the holy, for transcendence, for beauty. And that's one reason why I'm in the Anglican Church, because I think we have so much to offer a broken and fragmented world, the order, the beauty of the liturgy, the beauty of this space inviting people to word and table to feast and have communion with the one who who heals us, who makes us new. Humanity is hungry for the real thing. And the fact is, Jesus is the only real article. He's the definite article. He's the true divine king, the one and only son of God. And the fact is, Jesus' reign and rule admits or allows no rivals, no lesser G, little lowercase g gods. And so I want us to ask ourselves this morning, do we have any little g gods lurking in the pantheon of our modern American hearts? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? We're going to look at those two questions and then a statement at the end. So the first question, who do people say that I am? If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 16. We'll be following along here in Matthew's Gospel. Now the disciples list a few names and they, to me, fit into one broad category. Does anybody know how we could title all these names? John the Baptist. Elijah, Jeremiah, they are prophets. John the Baptist was a mighty prophet. Jesus even called him in Matthew 11, the Elijah, the one who would prepare the way. There was a tradition in Israel that went back a long time that before the Messiah appeared, Elijah would somehow reappear, okay? So John the Baptist was the one who makes straight the way of the Lord, He was a powerful doer of deeds, a powerful preacher, perhaps even a political dissident. He was killed for his ministry, but he was not the divine king. He pointed beyond himself. Elijah, the great prophet of Israel during the heretical apostate 
northern kingdom's journey, he was called by Ahab, O you great troubler of Israel. He would keep the kings in check. And really, that's what a role of a prophet was in Israel as we came to understand it. The prophet really didn't arise until there was a king because the prophet would prophesy against the king and against Israel and call them to return to the Lord, right? So in some ways, checks and balances going on. But Elijah was not the king. He prophesied against the king and called the king to repentance. Jeremiah, same thing, you're one of the prophets. They were ultimately penultimate. You know that phrase. They were not the ultimate thing. They gave witness to and pointed beyond themselves to a reality separate from themselves. Was Jesus one of these figures pointing beyond himself? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets? A lot of people think you're that, Jesus. Or was he something else entirely? Interestingly, if you look at how the world today views Jesus, I think in some ways it matches up with that menu of options, right? Buddhism. What does Buddhism teach about Jesus? He was an enlightened soul. They really love Jesus. If you're a Buddhist, you, you value Jesus. Muslims include Jesus as one of the prophets, right? He's, he's in that line with Abraham and all those guys. Modern Western humanism. Jesus, great moral teacher. A wonderful moral exemplar. Divine son of God. Eh. <laughs> but we all give credence in some way to this Jesus. But do you see how all these philosophies peg Jesus on the same level as all these other prophets, right? And before we just dismiss the world out of hand, ah, that's just the world, that's not me, Colin. Don't we do the same thing? How do we betray the true identity of Jesus by our own misguided or wrong-headed, not full allegiance to him? Here's a quote from one of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen. I think we'll focus on this influence that's in our hearts. It's a, the secular influence, okay? Since we speak of our time as the secular age, he says, shouldn't we be willing to accept that secularism has entered deeply into our own hearts? Leaving us with hesitations, suspicions, angers, and hatreds that have corroded our friendship with God? Is that true for you at all? It's worth pausing to think about. In many, if not most, of our lives, communion with God has lost its central place. The priority, the preeminence of Jesus has been marginalized to one of the prophets, one of the forces, one of the little g-gods we give allegiance to. This is particularly true uh, in the American uh, philosophy, right? What were most of our founders? We say they were Christian. They were in some ways, but many of them were what? Does anybody know the, the type of religion that many of them professed to follow? Anybody? Deism. Deism was not worship of the triune God. It was clockmaker, watchmaker. Okay, maybe there was a creator and that deist God created the world and kind of set it on a shelf and then stepped away. So really, we're in control of our own fate. 
We're self-made. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps in America, right? So this gets at the heart of our heresy in America as Americans. Jesus is not part of this deist understanding of the world. Jesus is the true king from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. Is that the Jesus you worship this morning? Or is it a faraway, distant kind of, uh, you know, he helps every now and then, but he's mostly apart from us. So we need to look at our own hearts and see how we've been corrupted, how we've placed Jesus on the shelf and not worshiped him as the one true Lord of the universe. So that's the first question. Who do people say that I am? Second question, Jesus turned to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, before Peter makes this confession, we've got to understand where we are in the story. Matthew's gospel, leading up to this point, no one had yet recognized Jesus and his true identity except for, does anyone know? Who was that? Peter did in this, in this um, passage, but there were spirits that were exercised and then confessed what? You are the Son of God. It was demons who saw Jesus for who he was. Perhaps the Canaanite woman saw uh, with eyes of faith, but maybe not in full to who Jesus was. Perhaps the centurion soldier in chapter 8. These were previous, so chapter 15, chapter 8. But no one had seen Jesus in his full glory. Even John the Baptist questioned him. Jesus' family questioned him. So this is a huge turning point in the narrative and in the history of the world, the recognition of the true Son of God. So let's get to Peter's confession. You are the Christ. Peter does not say you are a Christ or a Christ, Christ-ish, right? <laughs> we kind of fudge on things. You're Christ-ish or Christ-like, but employs for you English majors out there, the definite article. You are the Christ. I've reminded us of this before, but Christ was not a surname, the last name, Jesus Christ, but it was a title, a royal title, the anointed one, Messiah, the King. In Jewish idiom, this would have been a royal title. You are the King. Next, Peter says, you are the Son. So we talked about the, the Jewish background of Messiah. Let's talk about the Roman background of what it would mean to call Jesus the Son of the living God. Did you know that around this time, just this was in the water of Jesus' time. In fact, it was at the very site where this interaction was taking place, an example of this. There was a temple built to Augustus Caesar perhaps not 100 yards from where Jesus was having this conversation, all right? A temple, not just like, you know, we have this Strickland Center named, you know, across the street, but a, temp- a place of worship dedicated to Caesar, who was called, after his great-uncle Julius Caesar, a son of God. Even the name of the town was changed, Caesarea Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. So here's the point. When Peter says, you are the Christ, the King, the Son of the living God, 
He's putting his neck on the line. Just like Herod lost his head under Pontius Pilate, Peter surrenders himself to the full wrath of the Roman Empire by confessing Jesus as the one and true only king. No other power was king. In the book of Acts, it would be said of the disciples, they're turning the world upside down because they worship another king. Not Caesar, they worship Jesus, the true king, the cosmic king of the universe. So thirdly, Peter says, you are thus the Christ, the Son, and of the living God. Again, this site, Caesarea Philippi, was not only a temple, uh, housed a temple dedicated to Caesar, but was also uh, the home of a shrine dedicated to a pagan god. It just gets worse, goes from bad to worse, uh, to the god Pan, P-A-N. Pan was a fertility god. Uh, He was kind of of the underworld, and if you appease Pan, you might have more children or more prosperity or perhaps more uh, abundance in your crops. And before this, Hundreds of years before, it was a place of worship to Baal in the Old Testament, the worship of Baal. You see the little small cave, that little uh, shrine, I believe would be the one to Pan or somewhere in there. And then that large uh, cave opening would have been the opening to what was known as the gates of Hades, the opening to the underworld. And isn't it interesting, in Mike Fairman's class, Faith Lessons on the Early Church, we have spiritual growth that meets before this hour, uh, help me to remember this and to learn it again, that Jesus, at least according to Matthew's gospel, may have chose this place very intentionally when he asks, who do you say that I am, with worship of Pan and Caesar going on in the background? And when Peter makes this confession, he is saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, not this. Not what's happening here, all that brings death and destruction, that promises life, but throws us into the throes of death and chains our hearts and makes us slaves to our own passions. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, of hell, will not prevail against it. Isn't it interesting that just a few hundred years after this took place, sites like this all around the world, sites dedicated to the pagan worship of the elements of the world, would have cathedrals to the living God built right on top of them. That this small group of disciples who confessed Jesus as the one true Lord and King would turn the world upside down by this confession. Jesus is king, the son of the living God. You can have reconciliation with the one true God through Christ, through his cross, and through his rising from the dead. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What did Jesus do when he was laid in the grave? He stormed the gates of hell. He defeated death and sin once and for all. And so in Christ, the gates of Hades are stormed. And are broken. And it was on this proclamation, on this rock, on these places, and through these people that Jesus would build his church. Amen? Amen. So, two questions Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Let's close with the statement. I've already said it. 
And the statement is this, Jesus will build his church through his people. That's my paraphrase. Jesus builds his church, first of all, meaning I do not, you do not, we do not build Jesus' church. I will build my church, Jesus says, verse 18 of chapter 16. Isn't that freeing? (laughs) We don't have to build his church. Jesus is the builder. We are the stones. (laughs) Yes, we're living stones, but we're stones. But he also says, on this rock, I will build my church. And I think one of the meanings is God builds his church, Jesus builds his church through his people. We are responsible not for building his church, but for responding. We're responsible for responding to God's initiative in the world, in our lives, in the lives of our friends and siblings to to respond to what God is already doing. There's that memorable phrase from Henry Blackaby's uh, study, Experiencing God, I think that was what it's called. Look at what God is doing and go do that. Join him in that. You don't have to manufacture that on your own. We are ambassadors of the divine king. This is what started back in Genesis. He made us in his image, his regents. We have been fallen. We have fallen through sin, but now through Christ we're restored and we're now sent to be ambassadors of his reconciling love and his incredible majesty and glory. When we preach the gospel, the gospel of Jesus crucified and risen from the dead, the gates of Hades are stormed in the heavenlies, in our hearts, in our kids' lives, in our neighbors' lives, because Jesus is Lord and he has broken the power of the grave. So when we declare that Jesus is Lord, he is risen from the dead, stuff happens. And maybe something's even happening right now in you. The gates of Hades, what is of death in your life that you're still holding on to, that you're trying to appease or approve or manipulate God somehow rather than having God himself storm the gates of Hades and break that power in your life. So let's close now with just a couple of applications, all right? What are our applications? Number one, we can relax, all right? If Jesus builds his kingdom and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, we can relax. We can have a quiet confidence and trust in God. We can trust. We can surrender. We can receive. We come to the table every week and simply receive, not by our own merit, but because God has done this in Christ, this objective grace that we simply appropriate by faith. And so be reconciled to God in Christ today and receive and be joined to him again in union with God through Christ by the Spirit. So I think we can relax. Secondly, I think we can out of this posture of not being anxious, not having to do everything ourselves, we can then be open to what God is doing. We can be an opener of doors. Do you know this phrase where Jesus said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, was actually uh, in reference to what the rabbinical tradition would be. They would bind and loose, and Jesus said, you shut people out of the kingdom by your binding and loosing in your interpretation. Jesus said, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. What do keys do? They open. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. So let's be openers of doors. How can you be an opener of a door to the kingdom 
with a neighbor, with a family member. We, uh, I'm not saying this is a command, just as an example. We had an awesome opportunity. We were invited to join uh, the Whites and Stephanie and Jay White and others at a ministry in Clarkston. And they minister to refugees there. And in an anxious age where we're shutting doors on refugees, yes, we need to have national policies and, you know, and have proper vetting, but are we opening our doors to our neighbors? Are we simply being present to what God might do through the stranger? And we got to hang out with kids and play soccer with them and hand out flyers about these English language classes. These, these folks, there's this complex where 90% are refugees. We even had um, a family, a parishioner who speaks Arabic, able to talk to someone and be invited over to their house that, during that conversation. Uh, and God is, is up to something. These people are coming to learn English. They just say, I want to learn English. Are you a Christian? Tell me about that. And so it's an amazing opportunity we have simply to be openers of doors. And I want to talk about this briefly in a, in a few moments when I talk about community groups, which we will. Finally, we need to relax, we need to be openers of doors, and we need to hold fast. What did Christ tell his disciples immediately after this confession? Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Why? Because stuff was about to go down. And the kingdom will not be built on the yellow brick road, but on the road of suffering, the way of the cross, and the way through the grave. There is an article in the New York Times, a Chinese Christian, this is the title of the article, you should look it up, headline in the op opinion section of the New York Times, I won't make Jesus bow down to Xi Jinping. That's the surprising title in the New York Times. This is a Christian man who is about to be jailed but he's saying Christianity is being co-opted in some parts. There's a flourishing Christian church in, in China, but some parts of the church are being co-opted by the government. And he says, I'll have no part of it. And if that means I have to go behind bars, that's fine. But God builds his kingdom often through sufferings, through persecution. So while your sufferings may not compare to that example, what God is doing in your life right now is important, and you need to hold fast. Because if we hold on to this truth and to the one who speaks it, God will work through our lives and will redeem our sufferings because he's gone through the cross, he's gone through the grave, and he's risen now. And he offers new life. And he infuses us with that life by his spirit through word and sacrament. So in closing now, Jesus is building his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He invites you to participate in it. So who do you say that he is this morning? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.